2: Today on Around the Coin, I interviewed Matt Oppenheimer, the CEO and co-founder of Remitly. Remitly has raised over $500 million. They were started in 2011, and we talked about the origin story. We talked about the growth of Remitly, uh, the remittance landscape, the whole industry, what they're focused on, and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I really learned a lot from Matt and I hope you do as well. If you do enjoy the show, please do like and promote it, retweet it wherever you are watching or listening to it. It really helps us grow. The conversation today is sponsored by Otter Labs at HireOtter.com. You can check out a great option to hire developers for your startup. If you are a remote team and looking to bring on software developers down in South America, check out Otter Labs for more details. They have over 1,300 developers in their community, and they have just about every different software technology that you could possibly build on. So I bring you Matt Oppenheimer. All right, Matt, we are officially live. Thanks for hopping on the show today. I'm excited to dive in with you.
1: Thanks, Mike. Yeah, really great to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, I, I think one interesting and appropriate kickoff point would be your foray in the uh, African uh, banking system, particularly in Nairobi and Kenya. Uh, what, what was, how did the opportunity to move to Kenya and work for Barley, Barclays come across your plate?
1: Yeah. So I, um, yeah, for context, lived and worked in Nairobi, Kenya. I was head of mobile and internet banking initiatives for Barclays Bank Kenya before I started uh, Remitly. And my journey there, you know, I, I had I had traveled and done some volunteer work and other things um, in East Africa, specifically. Starting in college, um, I was always drawn to international experiences. Even though I'm, you know, a kid from Boise, Idaho, fifth generation Idahoan, I've traveled to close to a hundred countries lived and worked on three continents. So uh, I, at, in business school, I um, wanted to join a general management program and I wanted that general management program to have an international component to it. And um, I remember meeting with my then professor, now about to retire dean of Harvard Business School, Nitin Noria, and I was debating a few job opportunities, one of them at Barclays in their corporate and retail bank. And he said... um, it's great if you want to join Barclays. It's great if you want to do a um, international experience, but make sure to have the conviction to, to in a year or two. Because I spent a little time in London first with Barclays to actually go to Africa and East Africa, which is why you're actually joining Barclays. And I'm re- I, I thought back to that advice frequently because it very much was the load the road less traveled. Like hmm. it was not the typical career decision when you're at the mothership of Barclays at One Churchill Place in London to decide to then, um, go to Nairobi and, uh, take that job in, in digital channels. But I'm super grateful for Nitin's advice, super grateful that I took the road less traveled because it ultimately gave me the idea for this business. And here, here we are today.
2: Yeah. 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 I had a, it's funny you say that I had a similar experience after, uh, i went to engineering school at yukon and after there was these senior design projects where you had to choose a senior design project and you're basically spending an entire year doing this one project and i was late to this class and so everyone had already picked and i was stuck with this project based in singapore like redesigning this, uh, massage chair that, uh, Brookstone made. It's like one of these super high-end chairs and, uh, it went really well and they ended up hiring me. So I moved to Singapore and that just turned into an awesome experience of traveling the world. So I very much resonate with your advice, particularly to people in their twenties, you know, younger in your career to just do ideally physically you're in a new place but but even just intellectually exploring something that's just uncharted territory uh, you know kind of following that instinct is uh why not do it you know that's the time to to dive and have that adventure so so yeah so you're so you're sitting in uh in the nairobi office and is the story that you see how difficult it is for people who are moving between african countries to send money back and forth or is there I, I'm curious what, what was that spark to start the company?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I was, because I was an employee with Barclays, I was getting paid in British pounds. I was living in Kenyan shillings. I eventually had to get money back to us dollars. And that was all the things you'd imagine. It was inconvenient, expensive, um, not transparent. And, but mm-hmm. so that started, that started getting me thinking around it. And then a couple other things happened. One, m was transforming domestic financial services. And that's a mobile wallet that is one of the most successful mobile wallets on the planet. Um, and we can talk about how financial services, I think, really varies depending on the country. That was an important lesson. But in Kenya specifically, m was taking off. And then, um, quite frankly, a lot of my Kenyan friends, it was a much – well, it was a pain point for me. It was a much bigger pain point and a much more important problem that they had um, – to receive money from their loved ones in North America and Europe. And the examples of how I saw people receiving money, like I saw one of my friends, use like her sister's Bank of America debit card. Um, and I just thought there had to be a better way. And there had to be a better way to improve payments internationally, but with an initial focus on what are broadly defined by the World Bank as remittances to like low and middle income countries where that money goes incredibly far. And it seemed like the right time within Pesa and mobile wallets to actually solve that problem.
2: Yeah. Uh, so uh, wh- I always love this question, which is how do you go? H- how did you go from you have this idea conceptually, you understand it. Presumably, you've dive deeper into the nuts and bolts of how money is moving between countries. And then you fire up the software team, either a friend of yours or contracted freelancers, and you're building a prototype. Uh is there, a, is there a clear path in your mind at that point to what the product would do and look like? And has that changed much over the years?
1: Yeah, def- definitely. Especially the early days, there were some pivots. And before I talk about the pivots, I think there's a really important principle that I think about a lot. And that is, it's super important to fall in love with a problem that an entrepreneur wants to solve, not the solution. The solution will pivot, will vary, and I think for seasoned entrepreneurs, that's an obvious piece of advice. But I think it's super important. Like, like, um, and it was taught to me by a TechStars mentor back in 2011. And so, the problem I wanted to solve was that sending money internationally, especially to low and middle income countries, was um, inconvenient, not transparent, um, and there had to be a better way with with digital devices specifically. And so. At first, I was like, wow, all of the infrastructure of becoming a money transmitter, all of these other things, I was like, let's just create like the kayak, the like search engine for remittances, pre product, which I think is another super important thing, as an entrepreneur is to find the leanest way to test hypotheses that are embedded into the potential solution. We didn't even start building product, I spent a bunch of time figuring out why isn't there a company out there that like at a large scale is reinventing this industry, like kayak had done it for for airlines. And it turns out there's a bunch of issues with that business model. There's a lot more complexities and remittances. It's much broader than just price on like airlines, et cetera. So then I pivoted to say, okay, let's go go all in and become a money transmitter. Once we did that, again, coming from Kenya, I was like, all right, the vision and pitch is let's send money from a mobile wallet or from a mobile phone to a mobile wallet around the globe, because everywhere is going to be like Kenya with M-Pesa transforming financial services. Mm. Also an incorrect hypothesis, because it turns out that mobile wallets are huge in certain countries, Kenya, Bangladesh, we could go through a list. But also in a lot of countries, people want to receive cash. They want to receive bank deposit. They want, So we pivoted again from this mobile phone to mobile wallet, which was our Techstars pitch. Like that was our Techstars pitch. We had raised seed capital on it. Mm-hmm. But I think especially early stage investors trust that an entrepreneur will pivot in an efficient way around the right solution that customers actually want. And in our first market, the Philippines, customers did not want to send money to a mobile wallet. They wanted a, a range of cash pickup locations, bank deposit, door-to-door delivery. We widened our, our disbursement options. And there still is a mobile-to-mobile element, but it's it's not a mobile wallet specifically. Um, we pivoted away from that. So those are just a couple of the early pivots. And um, I, I think we're lucky to have made them quick enough in those early days before we ran out of time, energy, money, because I think that's how most most startups eventually fail.
2: Yeah, I'm curious on a slight tangent, but how how, how are things today in terms of the uh, preference of cash, if like physical tender, in, in the hands of people either in Africa or Southeast Asia versus Europe and the U.S. I imagine the general trend is declining, but is there a is there a strong foothold of cash preference in, in these places still?
1: Yeah. Definitely. Again, it varies significantly by country. So it's hard to answer that at a global aggregate level because, um, it varies so much by country. And so, but I have been surprised where, where we have, you know, eight, nine, 10 years of data of percentage of like bank deposit versus cash pickup in some select markets, how sticky cash has been. And I think it's easy to, um, Without deep understanding of customers in like certain markets like Mexico or Latin America or the Philippines, et cetera, it's easy for us to sit here and say, oh, cash is, cash is horrible. Cash is a crucial part of a lot of economies around the globe. Will it be that way forever? Probably not. Um, but the timeline, if I would have guessed 10 years ago versus now of how fast it has shifted has been slower, even through a pandemic. So (laughs) cash is important, but it's also, we shared a stat, um, a couple of years ago, two, three years ago in an article. And I don't know if it's exactly, you should go back and look at that article, but it was like 40 to 50%, I think is what we shared is, is cash pickup. It was cash pickup at the time. And, um, so it's also again, a wide range. It's bank deposit, it's mobile wallets. If you're sending money to Kenya, it's store to door delivery. It's all of these different options. And we can send money now to billions of bank accounts, hundreds of millions of mobile wallets, um, hundreds of thousands of cash pickup locations. And that's what we're getting is dispersing funds the way customers want to receive them. And the big takeaway there is cash is popular in some markets, but it really varies on the market. And you need to be able to get money in the hands yeah. of customers mm-hmm. the way they want to receive it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. I I, I understand the, the slow trend is transition away from cash. I would imagine that's largely stemmed from the inconvenience of having digital alternatives that are just not hitting network effects in certain areas, either connectivity issues or just old cell phones that aren't. I have a friend of mine who runs a uh, a startup actually uh, invested by Techstars as well in Tanzania. And he's building, it's like a marketplace for farmers, people who are farming maize and they want to sell it and, you know, have a more efficient network there. And he tells me that there's just incredible friction of people adopting it because of the like when they get a phone, it's stocked with Facebook and it might have a browser on there, but it's not high speed internet, iPhone 11, like we're used to. And and so you're, you're just like, you're, you're fighting, you're, you're lifting people into the digital communication age. It's not as if they're just downloading their 55th app onto their iPhone. So yeah, it's, uh, it's understandable for sure. Um, Fast forward to today, you guys have certainly hit scale. You you put in a lot of time on this, you know, 11 years working on this this business. Uh, you're now, I believe, at around a couple billion in valuation, over a thousand, somewhere in that range, employees. Uh, do you sit around and reflect on the journey and, and think about what the global impacts have been from the seed that you planted years ago? Obviously, you know, one person can only do so much, but I, I one of the things that gets me excited about entrepreneurship and founding companies this year. You're just, it's like planting a seed, you know, if it grows and you water it and you tend to it it, with all of your attention, it can actually turn into a forest. Um, yeah. I'm curious what your reaction is to that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that the, the entrepreneur in me honestly probably spends more time looking ahead at like what we can and, and, and should Mm do, but I like, but it's super important also to reflect on where we where we've been and how far we've come. And I like your seed analogy because it is. It, this is true of every entrepreneur's journey. If there's folks, you know, on the entrepreneurial journey listening to this call, um, it's it, it's not like that seed that you planted. Like as a forest, you just wake up one day and it's a forest. It's not. It's not binary, right? It's gradual. Over ten years for us, right, and. I think that it's this mix that, that I'm super excited about right now and confidence in what we've done that gives us this unique platform and scale and size to really reinvent how first payments are done internationally, f- specifically for immigrants. And then expanding that to a wider range of financial services for immigrants and their families. And so, um, as you can tell even my answer, like I'm talking about the future and what is possible. But we have this yeah. platform now that I think makes it possible. And I know how hard and it's probably for folks listening to this, it's a journey and it's iterative and it takes grit and perseverance. I think something that um, is often under talked about with entrepreneurs, like, because you see the headlines and the, and the, and the results, every entrepreneur, if they, if they don't say there's been like hard times, they're taking extreme grit and perseverance, then they're not being honest. So I think that it's, yeah. And I think it's, 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 It's a mix, It it definitely looking back gives me a lot of pride and confidence for what's to come.
2: Yeah, do you find that as, this is in my personal experience in in growing companies, that it sometimes feels the product moves slower as the company grows bigger? And this is, especially uh, when you're dealing with international, complex, regulatory, secure product related issues you have, you know, when you're small, you iterate with a few people and you're just, you're not concerned for, uh, you know, you're concerned for testing is just manual testing and, and QA, uh, as companies grow and scale, they have all sorts of scaling challenges and regulatory concerns. Did you, how do you, how do you think about it? is that even an issue internally? Or do you find the engineers and product team just kind of march along at their own cadence?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think that, um, Maybe it's the strategy that we pursued. Like we only focused on U.S. to the Philippines, really Washington State to the Philippines for the first about two really? years. In the life of the business. That's it. Just U.S. to the Philippines. Wow. Then we added Mexico or sorry. Then we added India. Then we added Mexico. We're talking like four or five years into the life of the business. And I think that the reason we did that is we tried is as a regulated money transmitter and as a company that really was focusing on the long-term, it was very counterintuitive. Like, one would think, focus on the long-term, go really broad, like, faster. And we actually grew way, way slower in those early days because of that. Um, we didn't get some of the nice SEO organic growth like some of our peers did. Yeah. But we, we drew, I drew and we drew inspiration from Amazon and Bezos. We're, we're headquartered in Seattle. He's an early investor. And not only did Amazon invest in e-commerce to start, But they invested in books in a very customer centric way and being the best bookseller and trying to get some of that friction out of the system for one specific vertical and then expanding from a stronger base. And so fast forward to today, I think maybe because we got a lot of that foundational stuff done and it's a journey, right? Like we have so many more foundations to build, but I think that mentality combined with now our scale and size to where we haven't been around for 150 years, like some of our competitors, we've been around for 10 but we have enough scale to be able to say, let's go deep, let's go much, much deeper into building out a payment network in Mexico. I just, you know, random example, pick your country. When you're five folks, you know, and and tiny and trying to fi- find product market fit, you just don't have the resources. When I talk about the flywheel effect or the benefits we have at our scale at size, we now have enough resources to truly reinvent payment rails across the globe so that you can receive money in minutes in a wide range of ways, um, and with complete peace of mind, because there's so much friction in that, which I can talk about later if it's helpful. And so anyway, long-winded way of saying, I think we should have a healthy paranoia that we're not slowing down and, um, that we're not becoming too big company. But we also now are in the sweet spot where we have enough scale to we can, where we can invest more and in ultimately a lot of infrastructure that we need to build to reinvent payment rails across the globe to help, you know, customers get money home more reliably and, and, and faster.
2: Yeah, yeah. Really interesting to hear the the uh insight taken from Bezos and the early investment. Um one of the things that that stuck with me, it's funny, I actually just watched a, a little snippet from him this morning. It's, it's some older conference he was at, but he was talking about long term vision and he said that somebody came up to him at this conference and said, Congrats, Jeff, on the recent quarterly earnings. And he said, Yeah, thank you. But that was already set in stone. A year ago, you know, we, three, four years ago, we were thinking about today, and uh, you know, he's thinking three to five years ahead, um, and probably further conceptually, but but really practically, three to five. The second thing that that stuck with me that he said was in conference rooms in the executive board, they would have a table or a chair rather that would be empty, designated for the customer to really. Really cement the physical representation of of what the customer would say in this setting, and uh, it sounds almost silly, you know, to do that because it's just what what are we kidding? It's just a chair there, but it does uh, it does emphasize the importance of the absence of the customer's voice in conversations and how. I mean, I, I've seen this where execs can have a vision for the future, and you can clearly articulate it to investors, and you get them excited, and you're building, 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 and it's not what people want. There's no one that actually wants this shiny thing that you're building. So, you're keeping it super practical, you know, and and Amazon, I think, is the exemplar of this. is uh, is a, is a really humble reminder for founders because you you want to build that shiny, beautiful thing, and this kind of it kind of loops back to what you're saying earlier when you're fixated on the solution. I think that when you're, when you're obsessed about this particular solution and building that you're liable to kind of drift off and, and not think about, okay, this is the frustration. Let's understand deeply the psychological mechanics that are making this person have to do this roundabout way of, of solving this problem. Um, so yeah, I try to, I should get a tattoo of that someday, (laughs) but yeah, how important it is. Um, totally. What was your run-in with him? Did you guys uh, bump into each other at a conference? Did you cold email Bezos? Was it Bezos in particular, or more of the folks in the investment team of his foundation?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, It was a combination of my co-founder was co-founder and CEO of a company called um, Shelfari that he sold to Amazon, probably get close to 15 years ago. So he he was at Amazon after he had sold his company to Amazon. And got to know Jeff via that acquisition, and then separately, yeah, via the TechStars network in Seattle, met um, his investment office. Um, and so it was it was multiple touch points. But you know, we we've been lucky to have a, a lot of really high caliber, both angel and institutional investors. Um, and just being in Seattle, you know, the the number of folks that um, have a lot of operational expertise and rigor, reinventing e-commerce that can be applied to um remittances has mm-hmm. been great so definitely a lot of lessons learned both directly from jeff and from um just being in, in seattle and, and having the amazon yeah. system here
2: yeah yeah i just moved to portland oregon so i'm not oh
1: cool way. no way oh,
2: yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah i dig it um i want to ask you like Technically, uh, what is uh, going on now underneath the hood at Remitly? When you're, when I'm sending a, a, a transfer from Washington to Philippines or any combination of countries, uh, are you keeping a central ledger and you're effectively moving money between banks and uh, you know you're allowing that instant, instantaneous transfer, but you're you know you're taking the lag time of the back end or or am I completely wrong? Is there some other mm-hmm. method for maintaining the
1: yeah, there's um there's a variety of ways to answer your question in terms of what's happening on the back end. But the 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 macro thing I'll start with is there's a lot of infrastructure that has to be built to enable, you know, fast remittances and remittances that really build peace of mind with customers. So we might drill into our disbursement network and what we do there is we go um, sometimes we will use what are called aggregators, where you can plug into one partner and they'll connect you with several. But with our scale and size, as I mentioned, we can go to the last mile. So what's happening on the back end there is we're doing direct integrations, or they're increasingly doing direct integrations with our API. And we have direct commercial agreements such that we can disperse funds instantly in a wide range of options. That's our disbursement network. Same analogy kind of exists with payment acceptance um, and how we collect funds, whether it's bank account or debit card, a wide range of payment collection options. Um the risk systems in terms of what's happening on the back end um are uh complex both compliance which means identity verification or K- KYC know your customer um it's complex when it comes to fraud prevention when and by fraud prevention i mean when there are stolen identities out there there're a lot of fraud vectors but basically trying to cash out stolen identities on a money transmitters platform um, is one way that fraudsters try to liquidate m- large-scale stolen identities, and so being able to delineate between good and bad cu- good customers and bad actors like fraudsters in a way that doesn't deteriorate the customer experience takes a lot of analytics, machine learning. Um, again, our scale and size helps us with that. Treasury, you were kind of alluding to when you talked about that, um, and even if we have direct integrations with the partners, how we're doing our flow of funds and cash management varies by the partner. And that also ties to things like reconciliation and other accounting systems that have to be custom built. So there's a lot, there's a lot, and that's just a few examples. But there's a lot happening behind the hood that is super important to get right um, in order to do what seems like a very easy thing on the front end of delivering funds to customers in a in an emerging market. How much of it is manual?
2: I mean, are there are there teams that are manually reviewing information, or is it virtually, uh, you know, approaching 100 percent automated?
1: Yeah, it depends on the area, but obviously, the again, our scale and size gives us the ability to automate more and more. Um, gives us a the ability to have our risk system risk systems have even higher precision. Um, <clears throat> there's always going to be a small percentage of customers in in the in the risk example that need to go through like a manual review process that are in part of a higher risk category, but you don't want to outright decline. You want to learn a little bit more. But increasingly, with our scale and size, like we used to have to buy some off-the-shelf systems that would be applicable for all e-commerce merchants. We're a very specific, more complex um, scenario. And so as we've gotten more skilled, we've been able to build more of our own systems that have had higher things like precision and um, have given us, I think, a competitive advantage, both in terms of managing costs, but also in terms of just creating more peace of mind, which is our brand positioning with customers.
2: Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm always curious to learn cause it's, uh, it's so simple on the front end, like, Hey, just click this button and send this money. Um, and I'm sure you have, you know, you, you open up the machine and there's all sorts of nuts and bolts and levers going on. And it's probably a variety of combinations depending on the size, who's doing it, what countries, what time, you know, um, what, t- what type of tender, uh, exactly. do you see, I mean, uh, I, I, I think this is this is probably a, a good segue, but the the impact of crypto has to be uh, on your mind. Uh, I'd love to ask it this in this way and get your take on it. Is when you think about the different directions you can go, uh, I find one thing about the global remittances market is there's so many things you can focus on whether it's b2b whether it's consumers in this area this geography uh, whether it's crypto stuff how how do you when you when you sit down in the boardroom and you have your team how do you uh split this up like how how, how do you what's your analysis how how do you even parse through what's important and what tends to be a priority um yeah i'd love to learn more about your thinking on this
1: yeah let me talk about the latter and then and then we can talk about crypto which I'd love to do um, but I think that yeah there's there's the, the insight in what you said is like international payments such a huge space like you know the, it's 1.5 trillion dollars that's sent in P2P remittances um, you start including B2B of in various forms you start including broader financial services that's obviously separate but there are just so many opportunities to add value to customers in this space and Our approach has been to take a very focused approach. And like that's true with remittances. And then as we're thinking about broader financial services, I think we need to take enough diversified bets because some will be successful, some will not. But I think we'll do that in a a probably more focused way than a lot of of companies, which um, I think will prove to be the right strategy in the long term.
2: Um, Do do you... When you do that, do you uh, make a uh, Google sheet of the countries by size, and then you stack rank them by how much money they're sending and how complex the regulatory climate is? Do you give them a score and say, okay, this is the one we're going after? Or is there some other method to the madness?
1: Yeah, well, I think. As I was talking about some of those, I was talking about broader financial services, but let's talk about remittances because I think that's equally I think that's equally important in terms of focus. It's it's almost like a game of risk. Like you you want to expand, but you want to expand very strategically and not spread your 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 forces, you know, too, too, too broadly. And so um the team has a very systematic way of doing that now. And we we kind of call it our like corridor expansion playbook. And um there's a lot, of, a lot of methodology in terms of the inputs and uh, in terms of what country we, we choose to do next, both on a send standpoint and a receive standpoint. And we're in 1,700 corridors, which means country A a country B. The early days, it was much more rudimentary, like why we picked the Philippines versus India versus Mexico. And that's when I was more involved. And I think that that was less systematic. I, had, I did have an Excel sheet like you're talking about. And we got yeah. lucky. That, I mean, there's some luck involved too, right? Like I think it was good that I didn't just default yeah. and say, hey, we should start in Kenya. Um, although that wouldn't have been a bad first market, I think it was good that we looked at the landscape and picked the Philippines as the first market. It was a great first market for us, but some of it's luck too, like any entrepreneur that doesn't that says none of it was luck along the way also I think is being dishonest.
2: Yeah, that's probably true. I do think there's a lot of people from the Philippines in the u s and a lot of people in the Philippines work f- for u s companies yep. you know, there's a big infrastructure of remote work there, which might have been different in twenty eleven um but tell me about the tell me about crypto. So obviously, crypto is a, a massive thing by now. We're sort of past the early adopting curve. Yeah. There's real serious people and, and money and companies that are emerging. Uh, of the many potential benefits to humanity that crypto provides, remittances cross border, in particular, feels like one of the really compelling uh, concepts. I mean, I worked in mm-hmm. a startup for the last couple of years uh, where. Our primary user base was in Nigeria, and they are like the, the the passion at which they love Bitcoin, Bitcoin in particular, but crypto more broadly is like I've never seen any society get so excited for it. Like they just love Bitcoin, and um yeah. So what's your what's your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, I I think that um, I you know. It's been interesting first and foremost to see how crypto's evolved the last 10 years. And, you know, we, I, I, from the very early days, I remember giving a talk with one of the Bitcoin core developers back in 2011. Um, Coinbase did not exist. It was not easy to buy Bitcoin. Um, but, uh, I remember learning about it at that point and, 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 and contemplating with Bitcoin specifically, how would it evolve? Because it's not a matter of whether, crypto will solve problems. It's about what customer problems it will solve. And I thought, and I wrote a paper early days around, is it better as, as a medium of exchange, a store of value, et cetera? And I predicted that Bitcoin would be more of a store of value than it would be a medium of exchange. Obviously, you can still use it as a medium of exchange, but the volatility and other things make it less ideal from that standpoint. So it has evolved to that, I think, broadly um, with Bitcoin being a store of value. So now you look at the current innovations and there's the question of like, what problems is it going to solve? And what are the areas that are on, that have some traction in terms of solving actual pain points? I think NFTs are a super interesting, these are all just my personal views. I think NFTs are a fascinating space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think that just like Bitcoin, like who knows what the actual value will be now versus the future. Is there speculation? Is there not? That I don't know. Um, but what I do know is that the idea of, of digital ownership and um, like, like, n- Non fungible tokens, like that is something that I think the, when you take a step back and think about on the one hand, it seems strange, like being able to own a digital piece of art, if you can just make a bunch of copies of it. But if you think about it in the physical world, yeah, you can own the actual piece of art and you can have, you know, you can see a bunch of prints of it. And so I think that the idea of digital ownership is an area that I'm excited about. And I think we'll, we'll see my personal view. Um, we'll see some excitement there. I think that as it pertains to remittances is something I've obviously thought a ton about as well. And, I think that where where there's interest where there's interesting developments is is one if there could be like a global digital mm-hmm. currency. Like if there's a global digital currency to where mm-hmm. the dollar didn't exist, the Mexican peso didn't exist, the Indian rupee didn't exist, etc. If there was one default global currency then that would be an existential threat to remittances. The challenge there is, I don't, I think the reason there is not a global currency is not a technology problem. I think it's a regulatory challenge. I think that most countries like sovereign control over their currency. And obviously in some countries where you've got hyperinflation, you've got other elements, you've seen more crypto adoption. Um, but that's different than the whole globe adopting a singular cryptocurrency. And so that is one that I think about but I don't think is likely because I think there are a lot of regulatory barriers to, to that. And I'm not sure we'd want that either. Like there are like stable coins that, that get rid of the volatility that make it a better medium of exchange. But I also think that the role of central banks, the role of like um, governments having some control over their own currency, um, I think is, I think that's something that will persist and has persisted for a yeah. long time. Yeah. So then the question is, What cryptocurrencies will actually evolve on, not on the margin, but like as store of values and as mediums of exchange. And the way we view that is we can, we can, we're good at, at, at fiat to crypto, crypto to fiat, et cetera. So if somebody in El Salvador wants to receive Bitcoin as opposed to cash, great, that we can do that just like we disperse into a mobile wallet or um, disperse into whatever other currency they'd want to receive in El Salvador. And that is how I think it'll evolve. I think it'll be on a country by country basis. Um, and I think that the on-ramping and off-ramping of funds, whether it's intra-country or whether it's fiat to crypto, I think is going to be something that the world needs. And that's where we feel like we can really add value in the space over time, whether that's via direct-to-consumer, like the El Salvador example, or whether that's via an example like um, uh, uh, with our Revitley for Developers business, where you might have a like global digital um, off-ramp, is what we call it. Where, um, if, if folks have money in a crypto wallet in an emerging market, at some point, they still need to get funds out of that, either into a bank account, cash, et cetera. And that's, I think, something that we can, we can help VR remitly for developers platform. We're just leveraging the rails. So we stay close to it. I think we're appropriately paranoid. I think we're well positioned as crypto grows to be able to be part of the ecosystem as we've proven to be. We're going to lean into that in a very customer centric way. And by the way, some of the companies that we partner with will be successful, I imagine, and some will not. But we're a company that'll lean in in a customer centric way to learn along some of the most innovative companies in crypto, and I think we have a variety of, way of ways of partnering with those companies to learn along the way.
2: Mm, I like that. Does it make sense to go down the path of a remitly coin as, as sort of a uh, semi-centralized uh, medium of exchange that people can use to you know p- move money back and forth among? you know if they're constantly moving money back and forth or or does that really just not make sense
1: I like the I like the Remitly coin on the around the coin podcast that was that's it's, it's well well placed <laughs> I don't I I what I would come back to with questions like that is like what is the customer value what could that Remitly coin give the customer that is not already that does not already exist within a fiat currency or within another cryptocurrency and um so it's not something we've thought about seriously, but that I'd, I'd go back to the customer and say, what's the value that it would add for them? If there's a value, then then we should consider it.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it doesn't seem obvious to me what, why the decentralized aspect of it would, would be valuable to people. Because if you just had a a currency internally, you could just keep it on your yeah. database and just say, this is how much you like a Venmo balance, uh, that effectively solves the problem for people. But I don't see, I mean, I can't imagine El Salvador is a great example of a country actually fully adopting Bitcoin, but when would the United States ever voluntarily without a war give up their power to print money and control the economy? I mean, I think it's, culture and currency are the two major exports to the mm-hmm. United States and th- us giving up the the currency of the, wor- mm-hmm. of the world effectively just se- seems very unlikely. So I, I think my take on it is that I agree with you that there, there just can't be a, not that there can't be, but I, I think that it doesn't, it doesn't practically make sense to have one world c- cryptocurrency because we wouldn't know what the cryptocurrency is worth. You know, you have to, what's the US dollar worth how do we know we're experiencing inflation well it's how much it costs to purchase goods but it's also relative to other crypto other uh currencies you know you kind of see what the average is for the others and you can see currencies rise and fall and uh i just can't quite see how we would ever be on one currency and also the fact that there there's practical technical mathematical trade-offs between store of value and transaction speed and cost to transact and energy storage and all, all this stuff so Maybe someday. Maybe it'll be a Mars coin. Maybe that'll be the first time there's like one currency on one
1: planet. Elon, I think Elon could probably, <laughs> uh, yeah, with, with yeah. all the SpaceX ventures. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think that. I I also um, yeah, I think that's right. There are a couple areas too of crypto that I that I am um, that I question. I don't know the answer to. They're not related to remittances, but I think about a lot. So we could talk about those if it's helpful. But um, I think you're right. Yeah, tell me. I I. So I mean, what do you think I, about? I think that, um, well, first off, I think that there's a big difference between the hype at times and the reality on the ground in terms of folk actual crypto usage. Like you mentioned Nigeria. I think that Nigeria has um, currency controls at times. There could be more of a demand in Nigeria. I don't, I'm not familiar. You're more familiar there. Argentina has, you know, hyperinflation holding an Argentinian peso versus Bitcoin in terms of just stability or a, or a stable coin over time. I'll, El Salvador, I think, has has definitely marketed that it's a national currency, but I'm not sure how many pain points it's actually solving locally, and so that's one thing that I think is just really important to look at the data. That, but the second thing that I I um I don't know, but that causes me a little bit of concern in the crypto space is some of the crypt some of the cryptocurrencies, and this could be due to my lack of understanding, but some of the cryptocurrencies that that offer. Very high APIs that are much, that are much higher interest rates for holding that currency. And what I'm afraid is happening in some of those is there's an underlying investment that, that the company or the currency is making an underlying investment that is higher risk, that is producing that higher return in an up market or when things are going well. And I just get a little bit concerned that folks that are investing in those cryptocurrencies with a high API do not do not understand the risks inherent uh, uh, with the underlying assets that are being invested in to produce those risks, often other crypto assets. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with like, folks, when they buy Bitcoin, they kind of know they can look at the price, they can see how it's been volatile. What I get concerned about is when consumers are promised, it, it'll be x% percent AP, uh, you know, y- your your uh, interest rate, and not knowing what if and what the risk is to that actual return to the underlying asset. So that's, that's an area I've paused on a couple times. Again, not related to remittances, but I think it's one to that I that at least I want to more fully understand. I don't know if you do, Mike. I'd love to hear your perspective if you've looked into it.
2: Yeah, I, I've I've dug fairly deep and had a couple people on the show actually talking about um, decentralized finance, DeFi, and then sort of. Cfi is another terminology yeah. that gets thrown around. So this would be companies like Nexo.io. Celsius is a big one. Uh, these companies are effect They're not exchanges, so you can't per- you can't move money between fiat and crypto in them. That would be like a crack in our Coinbase. But once you're in crypto, you can move it into these um, these platforms, and you can hold stablecoin. They're effectively a uh they're they 're acting as the lending arms analogous to banks, so you put in stablecoin u s d c or tether into nexo and it 's using that capital to allow people to reinvest and and they 're a bit vague but i I did dive into this and one of the things they do with the the assets is they they allow they provide liquidity to exchanges so if uh you know you go to coinbase and you want a hundred thousand of u s d c uh th- th- part of that comes from this liquidity exchange. So particularly for higher trades, they provide liquidity uh, and there's a price for that. So people would pay a transaction fee on Coinbase or Kraken or Bittrex or somewhere uh, in exchange for that access to that, that uh, specific currency. Cause there's, there's so many different currencies that there's not necessarily always trades open for that amount. Cause you'd have to match, you know, with every buy and sell order, there has to be, there has to be uh, you know, uh, available liquidity. So the exchange exchange's bottleneck are often that liquidity. So that makes sense to me, the the return cycle. So if you put in, I think right now it's around 9%, nine and a half, ten percent 10% on USDC. So stablecoin, virtually the same for Tether or DAI or some of the other stablecoins. And then I, th- I think Bitcoin is around, Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, Solana, some of these, they're around, uh, I think, 6%. So pretty high, you know, to earn 10%, nearly 10% on the dollar effectively, even though it's a stable coin, compare that to your, your checking account or a savings account of, you know, 1% or approaching zero, it's drastic. And so then it's a, then you would naturally say, well, to your point, what is the risk inherent to this? What am I giving up in exchange for that 10%? And I think, yeah. uh, why I view it as two things. One is it's, it's not, you don't want to just compare the risk to, uh, checking account in which the checking account is zero. There's some risk in a checking account, but to assume to assume that that is an appropriately calibrated risk reward uh, investment, I-, I think that's not true. I think you're getting far less in a checking account than you are for the reward. It's very stable, and that's great. You know, you're not going to lose it in a checking account, but you're getting incredibly low returns on that compared to you know if you put it in the market, if you put it in private investments or elsewhere. So I think I think. Part of when we look at like Celsius and Exo and say, "Oh, these are really high returns on stablecoin," we're comparing that to the interest rates in a checking account, which are super, super low. So I think there's there's some of that as well. Um, inflation probably plays a role, you know, in, in why <laughs> in what future dollars would look like. Um, but I think that the macro trend is that people want access to crypto, and they're they're willing to pay a lot to make inveculate in uh,
1: speculative,
2: yeah, speculative yeah. investments.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, uh, and I'm glad you've dug into it. Maybe it is the liquidity management in terms of how they're producing that return. I think that, um, it's, it's just an understanding of that and what's driving the returns and what, what, if any risk exists that I, that I, I've wanted to dig into more. Um, so I'm glad you are. And to the extent you have other companies in the space, I'd love, I'll be listening to hear the questions you ask. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, and these these guys are a bit more they're, they're a bit more vague to know what's going on because some human is programming the the funds and programming what they're doing with the cash just like a bank would, you know, decide where to make investments. But I think the more straightforward and transparent by far is the completely defi uh uh protocols that are out there. So if you go if you and again, there's always a price to it. But if you wanted to borrow money in the form of crypto uh on a, a a DeFi platform, you put in, you know, the equivalent of a hundred dollars and you could take it out, you could take out less than that. So the collateral, there always has to be collateral. Whereas a bank, you know, if I take a mortgage out in a bank, there's there's not collateral. They're making a bet that I'm gonna have earning potential and be able to pay that off. So which I think is the only way you can do it. You know, I don't think there'll be a I mean, this kind of parlays into like credit scores and what how we view the the risk ratio of an individual person, um, which I think is pretty prime for disruption. But currently, I don't see any projects that are effectively assessing somebody's ability to return on yeah. a loan.
1: Yeah, yeah, so so, I think there's certainly a lot of opportunity to improve underwriting for sure. Do, do you uh, interact
2: with those companies, the Experian, TransUnion? Um,
1: What's we'll the
2: other one? Equifax. Not, not, Equif-
1: not, not a ton, especially from Equifax, a Linux yeah. standpoint. Um, but I do think that I mean, when you think about our customer base, and um, you think about uh, customers that move to a new country, and they may have very high credit worthiness. Like, could be um, a customer that works at Amazon that sends money back to India. But they don't have the credit history in the U.S. I think there's opportunities there. Like you said, there's just there's a mismatch there in terms of their credit worthiness and the amount of credit they can actually get. And then likewise, there's whole sets of customers that are just starting to enter the formal financial system on a global basis. And um, I think there's there's immigrants are are because of the fragmentation um, of financial services by geography and by country. And how that trickles down to credit worthiness assessment. I I think that our customers are underserved in that space. So I'm happy to see crypto uh, trying to improve that. Um, I I think it's a problem that needs to be
2: solved. Uh, um, Yeah, I agree. Do you see one of the things I, I was thinking about prior to our call was the insight you would have if you can see it doesn't have to you don't have to have even close to all the remittances volume. But I'd imagine you guys are fairly representative of what, as a percentage, the world is doing. So you're sort of, if I'm looking at the entire world, you're seeing all these connections being done. And there's certain pipelines, U.S. to Mexico, U.S. to Philippines, you know, whatever, but there's certain major pipelines and and then there's trends of those pipelines over time. And presumably that's due to migration patterns of people they are moving to certain places. It's due to the economies growing in certain areas like Nigeria, um, whatever other developing countries. I think of like, uh, Southeast Asia, certain cities in Southeast Asia. Do you do you have a team or do you look at these and try to draw an understanding of what's going on in the world? And uh, I'm particularly cons- interested slash concerned about the U.S. and this sort of uh, stagflation situation that we're in, where it's uh, economic stagnation combined with inflation. Yeah, I'm curious what your take is on the U.S.'s particular economic state, If you if you're tend to lean bearish or bullish or yeah you make
1: sense of I, that i think on the u.s context it's, i mean i don't have any magic answers there because i'm not an economist but i i i could uh yeah i could pontificate but i'm not sure i'd add a ton of value there i think that um i think we do have a sense of like remittance flows um but we're a small percentage of the overall market so there are some organizations like the world bank has a whole division focus on remittance both pricing and remittance flows um perfect it's imperfect data but it's it's probably the the most widely regarded um out there and um because we're a relatively small percentage of the market you know we don't like and because digital is growing faster and offsetting some of like the cash to cash remittance use case i don't know if we have a bunch of macro trends that we could draw but um it's certainly interesting like from a macroeconomic perspective it's an interesting time right now for sure
2: yeah 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 <laughs> it does represent i mean the flow of money represents it's just energy right and it's it's where where people are deciding to live and I don't know if it's an ideal world but in a in a world where people could live where they want to live, then effectively we have a more competitive regulatory uh situation, right? Like if the U.S. has certain rules that you're not in favor of, you could just move down to Costa Rica or Mexico or somewhere and vice versa. Obviously not quite the case as it is like domestically within the U.S., but even just seeing migration patterns of friends of mine that have moved in the last couple of years due to COVID or career changes or just personal interest in living in different places, it's like, yeah, that's one of the things I deeply come to appreciate in the U.S. is the competitiveness of the regulatory and policymakers in different states and how you just vote with your, you know, vote with your feet, move to a different place. Um, When you went through your IPO uh, recently, last year, I believe it was, uh, how how did you, how how did you go about it in in the, how did you prepare? You just say, okay, we're approaching the size of an IPO. Uh, We want additional cash beyond what private funds are, are capable of writing us. Um, let's go IPO. Do you go to Goldman Sachs and say, Hey guys, uh, this is what we want to do. And they set it up and they do the work and you go around and do your pitch to different banks. Um, is there, have you considered alternative options? I know some tech companies in particular have gone direct listings or through a SPAC or wh- what's the climate like today for companies IPOing?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it was, it was, it was probably different last year than it, than it, than it has been year to date, just in terms of market performance. But in terms of the process for us, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting and and very important and celebratory stop along a much, a much longer journey of where we're headed. And I think that our vision is really all around really improving the lives of immigrants and their families by providing the most trusted financial services on the planet. And, um, not all companies go public, but if you look at some of the largest iconic companies, I think that that is where a lot of companies, especially venture backed companies, especially end up as, as a um, checkpoint, celebration point. Like it was the first time I had seen 75 of our most senior and tenured leaders um, since the pandemic started. And it was this window in, bet- <laughs> in between like the um, main, call it part of the pandemic and Delta where we we're able, ac- able to actually see everybody. And I think it recharged us though for a much, you know, longer journey. Um, but it was, it was definitely an exciting point as well. And one that we also tried to like incorporate our customers into, like some of our longest customers as well were on stage with us. Um, we had a founder dinner with my family, with my two co-founders family and then some of our earliest customers, um, right after the IPO in New York. And so it kind of rooted us where we're at. And, um, also in, in terms of what's to come. And we, we we did the traditional IPO. We did want to raise some capital to be able to yeah. invest in our future growth which is more difficult to do via direct listing and I think there've been mixed results with SPAC. So the traditional IPO was our was our preferred path and one that we were able to do successfully and we're super excited yes.
2: about. What's the downside of a direct listing? V- not as v- may have changed, but
1: traditional direct li- listings you 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 can't raise capital. So you're basically directly listing um existing like ownership or in an IPO, you're actually selling, um, shares to raise some capital to be able to invest in, in future growth of the business. And we wanted to be able to build out, you know, a, a strong balance sheet to invest in the long term, which is what we did. Mm.
2: And do you feel like in hindsight, the process is efficient? Like, uh, or do you feel like banks are taking an, an absorbent amount of, uh, resources from companies who work hard over 11 years? <laughs>
1: I think it's good that there have been that there's been innovation in the space where, you know, SPACs, direct listings, IPOs, there isn't just one route because I do think that 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 mm-hmm. that, that creativity and innovation creates more accountability and better options. So um I think it's I think it's improving and and yeah. I, I'm glad it is.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I, I wonder where it goes because it's an important milestone. It's it's celebratory for sure, but it's also very practical. Yeah. You know, it's like access to cash, access to like free market cash is largely constrained behind these proverbial gardens of you know Nasdaq and the Dow, yeah. and and they only let in certain people, and you have to do this certain dance to get in, and you have to be a certain size. And it's like, well, if there were just playing out the hypothetical. If there are if there's a completely free market open stock exchange, anyone can list at, you know, say over $10 million valuation. There, there's some some floor, but it's it's much, much lower. Uh it's much more it's much less expensive to go into this exchange. Like there's some people I talk to that are that are considering this or, or trying to work on this in crypto. Um and I I ask you, just because I'm interested if you feel like there's enough I always feel that inefficiency is the fuel for innovation. So if it's a really inefficient process and it's really expensive, and you're like, "Hey, we spent, you know, three percent, five percent of you know, company net worth, or however you measure that," then it's it's like, well, it's probably not going to be that way for very long. Uh, you know, a relic of the past, traditional systems. But yeah. it sounds like from you, it's it's a it was a fairly efficient process and fairly. Yeah cash. Mm-hmm. And
1: I think whenever there's an ine- inefficiency, I think there's opportunity for innovation for sure. And the question that often I think exists is like, what is, what is inefficient versus what is like a tangible value add? And how do you get that tangible value add or necessity while cutting out the, the inefficiencies? Um, so, but yeah, it's, it's good to see innovation space in specifically.
2: Hmm. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Um, Tell me about the the Pat, so you have Passbook. So passbook.app. app. Uh, I was checking it out. So it's a different website entirely. It's it's obviously branded with Remitly, and it's it's clearly associated with yep. you guys. But different different site entirely. So domain authority is going to be unrelated. Um, you know, presumably there's like a designated team that you have working on this. Why spin out this product? What's the uh, what are you trying to accomplish? Yeah,
1: I, I think it it goes back to our vision around broad financial services for immigrants, and I think that there's there's um, when you look at what it's like as an immigrant to be able to get a bank account, um, not having an SSN, not having it designed for you know specific immigrant uh, needs, both in terms of sign up and the products that they need. I think there's a big opportunity there, um, and so. Do you do you mean, not not to cut you off, but do you mean particularly for immigrants into the U.S.? Yes. Yeah. So we just started, Passbook's just available in the U.S. right yeah. now, kind of like we started with um, U.S. to the Philippines. Um, we started just in the U.S. with Passbook. And um, I think that Passbook's indicative of a broader range of financial services that's part of the vision of where we want to head and what we want to accomplish. And I think having kind of a direct deposit account um, is foundational as part of the broader vision of financial services, because a lot of other financial services, Potentially need to plug into that, etc. So, you know, I, I think we've talked more about Passbook, but the we're, we're excited about the wide range of financial services that we can offer our customers over time.
2: Anything else in particular that you're excited about, as opposed to a generic blanket nothing today?
1: But but just tying it back to that that vision. Yeah. Um, you know, we we yeah. So nothing today, but excited about the vision of what's. Happening.
2: Yeah. Oh. I'm, I'm on the <laughs> edge of my seat. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm, I'm curious too. I, I always like asking uh, folks who are running larger companies about yeah. culture and about um, think because it's so important, but also so nebulous and difficult to define. So, how people feel in relation to the company and in relation to other people. Um, do you know? Do you create? presumably you have a mission statement vision that's repeatedly and clearly articulated to people in the company um, are there things that are u- unique that you're deploying are there um, you know a strategy you think that's that not a lot of other companies are doing to uh, create a healthy and positive and consistent culture around the company
1: yeah I think that certain. I could talk about culture for a long time um, and and I think that culture is like you said, every company has a different way of getting it. it, It's, it's, it's my definition is how people interact, how people get things done. Um, every company is different. Most companies I would argue are not that intentional about culture. It just kind of evolves a little, a little less intentionally for us. We have, uh, for me, it's first about saying what is culture. It's not like snacks in the kitchen. It's like how people interact. how people get things done. Second is defining those cultural values. And so we have a list of cultural values. It's a longer list. It's not meant to be memorized. You're never be quizzed on it. But if we're, if the definition of culture is how people interact, then I don't believe personally you can put like five w- words up on a wall and like capture the the complexity of human interaction. So some of our cultural values are things like customer centricity. That's always been number one. Lead authentically. Bias for action. Sweat the details. I could keep going. Data driven. Be an owner. I could keep going through them but they're meant to describe how people interact so that they can be then embedded once they're defined in the interview process into the performance review process and then the magic kind of happens in everything that's that's in between those two things. I think they should be evolving. They shouldn't be static. I think they sh- meaning that we refresh them on a regular basis. More dramatic refreshes early days than now but we still refresh them um on a regular cadence. Um I think that they should be measured. I think that they should not be a North star of like chest thumping. We're awesome at all of these things. I as CEO, we as a company, each team, each individual should recognize where their strengths and weaknesses are. So they have that North star of where they want to head. And I think in terms of construct, not content, Amazon's a pretty good example of how they've instilled their leadership principles, longer list across the whole company over a longer period of time. And that's not... In content, you'd see some different values than Amazon and ours, like joyful, be an empathetic partner, things like that. But I think in content, in construct, Amazon's done a great job of scaling like a more consistent culture across the globe. And so, or for a longer period of time, at least they've done that. And so I could keep going, but those are some of my thoughts on culture. I guess the only the last thing I'd say, mm-hmm. there's no silver bullet. I think all those things I just said are, are important, but two months in two or three months into starting the business, three co-founders went and like whiteboarded. Um, what we wanted our cultural values to be, because like when we were about to like bring on the fourth person on our team, if we didn't have values, at least like tr- they weren't that good at the time, but we tried and we spent half a day, we didn't boil the ocean, we whiteboarded how we wanted to interact and how we wanted to get things done, and then we were able to apply it to new people we were bringing into the company. And now I think about like that fourth person we hired, that was twenty five percent of the company. That person was like, like I think about a hiring right <laughs> now, I'm like twenty five percent of the company. It stresses me out just thinking about it, and so. I think getting yeah. culture an attempt, not striving for perfection, but using some of those principles, and then in the first few months of the business, trying to define the values and integrate them into the interview process is super important.
2: <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it. Sounds like you do think about this a lot. Uh, uh, obviously, it's one of the it's one of the few real levers you can pull to make an impact in the company, and it feels like a thing that you you can't. It's not like a policy you change and people change. It's like uh stacking bricks on a house. Like you can, you can start to lean this way or lean this way, but it's sort of a, an accumulation of how people are acting over a long period of time. Cause people, I mean, it's, you, you can set clear miles, you can set clear objectives and write them all down. It's also a huge emphasis on, on fi- how do you, you know, finding the right people, being a magnet for the type of people you bring in, um, easier said than done
1: for sure for
2: sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, uh, thanks for diving in. La- last thing I want to ask you, I, I, I'm just very personally interested. How do you, what, what sources of information of, uh, people, books, um, wisdom are the things that come to mind, uh, uh, of places that you've learned over the years?
1: Yeah. A couple come to mind. I mean, one is, um, or two or three come to mind. One is uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. I'm sure other people have probably mentioned that book, but I do think it's a really great it's a compilation of his blog posts, but it's so great to be able to open a chapter and be like, oh, this is exactly what I'm facing and this is an example of some principles in terms of how to deal with it. So that's one. Um, second is less probably uh, well-known, but there's a book called The promise that changes everything, I think is what it's called. The author is Nancy Klein. And it's all about the promise to not interrupt and to very intentionally listen. And that's been pretty transformative in terms of how we run meetings at Remitly that I think are higher, um, caliber and more inclusive. So that would be a second. That would probably be the second book that I would recommend. Um, and then the third is I think the author's name is Patrick Lancioni and it's called The Advantage, but it's all about how to kind of create a high performing team. And um, some good good dynamics. If there's anybody on the podcast thinking about like how do I, how do I storm form and norm a, a really high performing executive team, and what are some ideas on rituals and ways to do that?
2: Oh, store,
1: form and norm. <laughs> like store that. form and norm. Maybe I just made that up. I, 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 I may have made that up. <laughs> Is that the first? Tell me that. Tell me that's not the first time you said that's that. It But now I'm questioning if that's an actual term. <laughs> I'll Google it afterwards. <laughs> I love it all right my man
2: thanks for hopping on today this is a lot of fun i learned a ton and i really appreciate your time thanks so much mike great to be here thank you for listening to around the coin if you enjoyed the show today consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts tweet about it or text it to a friend we really appreciate all the support and growing that we can if you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us don't hesitate to reach out we would love to hear from you